You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Last week we talked about joy in this series that we're in, the uh, journey to God, where we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent, these songs that God's people would sing on their pilgrimages back then. That was a tough one for me, uh, to Jerusalem. And uh, so last week we learned about joy. Next week, Gary is going to be talking to us about happiness. And sandwiched right in the middle of joy and happiness, what everybody would imagine, without a doubt, is work. (laughs) Welcome to church. We're going to learn about work today. And it's interesting that it lands in the middle of joy and happiness. And I think maybe there's something to that. Um, So the thing is, when it comes to work, I don't think it's a a stretch for any of us to realize that there's times in our lives where we have worked really hard and it just feels like it's not paying off. Like it feels like it's just no matter how hard we try, no matter how much time we put in, we just can't seem to get ahead. Has anybody ever been there? You feel like you're the hamster on the wheel and you're just like really tired, but you never moved, right? Right. Or you work really hard and it feels like things just sort of keep falling apart, like those poor guys in the concrete pouring video. My favorite guy in there was the guy that just hung onto the hose. The whole floor collapsed under him and he was like, please don't die, right? Sometimes when you work, things just go catastrophically wrong and you're like, what in the world is going on? So this morning... We're going to talk about work, and we're going to learn a little bit about work from Psalm 127. And as we dig into this psalm, we're going to unpack the psalm a little bit, and then it's going to lead us on a rabbit trail to learn from Paul a little bit what he has to say about work. Um, And I just want to say up front, this is just to give us a a little sliver, a little insight into God's word and God's... um, uh, attitude about believers and kind of work and work ethic. This isn't uh, an exhaustive everything the Bible has to say about work. Remember, we're just trying to kind of camp in the psalm and then just bounce out of it uh, from what we can learn about it. So I want to read the psalm to us and then we'll uh, kind of chase some rabbit trails and learn a little bit, all right? So on the psalm, is Psalm 127. It's going to be up on the screen or in your notes. It goes like this. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from God. Uh, Sorry, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. All right, we'll circle back to the children part. Because I know for a lot of people when they read that, it's like, how did we go from how God works to you have a lot of kids? That seems weird. We'll get there. Hang in there. So the beginning of the psalm starts off with some ultimatum type statements. This, unless, unless God builds the house. The builders are working in vain. They're wasting their time. Unless God guards the city. Like there's this ultimatum. Unless God's at it. And it goes on to say it's useless to work morning till night, like anxiously chasing after food. Don't you know that God gives rest to those he loves? And one of the things I want us to understand is that it was common then and it's still common now. Paul encountered it. We still encounter it today. And it happened early on. People misunderstood 
kind of God's perspective on his people working. They would hear different things and it would result in some uh, behavior and actions that didn't sync up with what God had in mind. And so like, here's an example. In this particular psalm, uh, it was common for people to misunderstand it and what they would maybe hear instead was something like, you don't have to work hard to be a Christian. You don't have to put yourself out at all. Rest, relax, sleep. God is doing everything that needs to be done. For us in our Western culture, hardworking Americans that grow up in most homes where having a good work ethic and is really highly valued, the idea of hearing this psalm and thinking that people hear, hey, you can just rest on your hands, you don't have to work hard, God's got it all under control, that feels a little bit weird to us. Like, every, that sounds lazy. It's very un-American. You'll never get ahead like that, Right? But it's really common for people to misunderstand this idea that, like, that, that if God is at work and if it's all, uh, it's all dependent on things being good, if, if God is at work doing it, if God is at work protecting the city, if God is at work providing for the food, if it's all dependent on God working, then what am I doing? Getting up so early every day, like, I think I'll just sleep in and let God bring me food. I think I'll just check the mailbox and see when my magic money delivery comes, right? Like they misunderstood it and it was common then and it was common thing that Paul dealt with as he went out and, and shared the gospel and took God's word to new places and new people and as he shared the gospel and the good news about who Jesus is and forgiveness of sins and a second coming of the Lord, people misunderstood what it meant to work and, and use their times and talents and abilities. And, and so Paul had to deal with how do we talk to people? How do we give people a right understanding of like a, a God's perspective on work? And so I want to chase a little rabbit trail and look at how Paul addressed some issues where people got confused about work and work ethic and stuff. And there's kind of an extra little fun benefit from chasing this rabbit trail is we're going to learn about a place that I think has a lot of cool similarities with what we have available here in Pullman. Um, those of us that uh, are in Pullman, we recognize that there's something unique about living in this town where we get these really cool benefits of a small town. We get this really like nothing is more than five minutes away no matter where you live, right? Like the longest you'll ever wait in a traffic jam is like two stoplights downtown and then you're like, <gasps> I had to wait for the light to change again, Right? Like, that's about as hard as it gets here when it comes to, like, the city part of things. So we've got the benefits of this really cool small town where you get to know everybody. But because of where we're situated and because of the college here and other industry here, the world comes to Pullman, which is unusual for such a small little rural community. And for us as Christians, we get this amazing opportunity we get this amazing opportunity to really, truly have at our fingertips the ability to take the gospel to the world living here in Pullman. Like, what would it look like if, if our faith permeated every relationship we had, if we built community and our family of, of Christ grows to the point that no one can come here without taking the gospel with them when they leave because you just don't ever come to Pullman without 
getting connected and, and, and communicated with and loved on. And, and like, like it becomes almost part of the, the fabric of the DNA of a, a WSU tour is, oh, by the way, if you go there, there's this Jesus stuff. And it's sort of like, like, they're, like it's a reputation that spreads. And there's a place in the ancient world when Paul was out traveling and sharing the gospel that had a, 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 the same allure, the same attraction as this uh, idea that, that if, you could t- if you could get the gospel there, if you could get your faith in, in Jesus rooted there, and that it would start to reproduce itself one person to another, if you could get it there, then you could get it to the whole world. So, let me tell you a little bit about it and how Paul got there. So on Paul's mis- uh, second missionary journey, he does an epic road trip. So we know that he did some sailing. This one was a road trip. And he went all the way through what is uh, now modern-day Turkey, biblical Asia Minor. He traveled with Silas uh, back through areas that he had been before. And we learned a lot about this in our Acts series earlier this year. And so he went through places in the region of Galatia, which represented a lot of different churches like Lystra and Derby and Iconium and others, and he'd stop along the way at different churches that he had planted uh, previously, checking in on them, giving them updates, training, teaching in the synagogues, and then he continued to travel. And as he traveled, we learned in Acts that there was times where he wanted to head back south again towards Asia, but the Spirit of God kind of uh, stopped him prevented him from going south. And then he wanted to go north up into this region called Bithynia. And again, the Spirit of God prevented him. And it's like, I don't know, did he try to take a right turn and every time he had a tie rod messed up, like he just couldn't go? Thank you. All four of you that know what a tie rod is. Sorry, I got to work on my examples. So he couldn't go to Bithynia. (laughs) I know. It's a bad, bad joke. Sorry. Um, so he couldn't go to Bithynia, and so what did he do? He's driven, so he just keeps going. He keeps going west until he gets to the coast of the Aegean Sea to a place called Troas, and at Troas, we learn in the book of Acts about Paul having a dream, a dream that changed the course of our faith forever, a dream where he thought about that, that he dreamed that there was a man in Macedonia, which Macedonia was a place across the Aegean Sea, a big region in a place called Greece. And this Macedonian man called for Paul in his dream. Hey, come over here. We need your help. Well, for a guy like Paul, that's all he needed to hear because the next morning he was up and packed and looking for a boat. He was like, I know where we're going, Right. And, and Paul goes to get on the boat, <clears throat> the boat, and as he's sailing, it, I just start to think about what it must have been like to be with Paul, to wonder what he was thinking about, to wonder why he was so driven, so excited, where he was going. And for a lot of us, I think we can look back and we hear part of that story and we think, uh, uh, we sort of get a picture in our mind of Paul, like, uh, like Lewis and Clark, like sailing out into an unknown thing, like he doesn't know what's around the corner. And I want you to know that's not a proper way to imagine what Paul was going into. Paul knew exactly where he was going. He wasn't sailing off across the Aegean Sea to an unknown land. He was sailing off to what was perhaps some of the most well-known lands in the world, some of the most widely heard about and known about places in the, in the world at the time because the place he was sailing to was the home of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great from that land 
had gone out and conquered the whole world. Every drop of earth that was known to man at the time that was conquerable, he conquered. So much so that at the end of all of it, it said that he looked out and found that there was no more worlds to conquer and he wept. He was so driven. He had this dream to marry the, the west to the east, to the north, to the south, to create like this, this unified world that had common language and common practice. And, and, and so there was all kinds of fun stuff to learn about Alexander the Great and everything that he did and, and how it paved the way for Christianity. But, but what Paul is doing is as he's sailing across here, he's going to a land where, where for a guy who wants everyone on earth to know Jesus Christ, to get to go to the place where someone else had gone before him and from there had reached the whole world, that's a pretty exciting destination. Because it's like, what if? What if the gospel could take root there? We already know that from there, the world could be conquered. So how excited he must have been to go there. And so Paul finally arrives in Macedonia, not much longer after being in Macedonia, preaching in some synagogues, he travels uh, over to a, a, a place called Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a famous, famous city. It had been around for well over 600 years before Paul's arrival. It had been uh, the naval base for the Persian king Xerxes had operated out of Thessalonica. The Romans had huge dockyards and shipbuilding stations there. It was a very strategic, important city. And even when Rome ruled, it was a free city, which meant there was no Roman soldiers that occupied the city. And so Thessalonica had a lot of freedom. It was a very metropolitan city where a lot of different ideas and industry was entertained. It was a huge city. It grew up to 200,000 people in the ancient world. Huge, huge opportunity. These are the things that Paul knows about. These are the dreams and ideas, and you start to imagine what he might have imagined and why he would have been so excited to get there. And so he gets to Thessalonica, he teaches, and he doesn't last very long in Thessalonica because he faces some serious opposition. And he gets run out of town for fear of his life. And so he was there for a very short time, and he leaves, and he's not gone maybe a month or two. Very soon after he had left uh, Thessalonica, the thing that's, that's just driving at Paul, that's keeping him up at night, that's got him talking to God constantly as he's, he's wondering what in the world is going on in Thessalonica. Like what happened to the people that heard the gospel? How are they doing? What happened to the people that committed their lives to Christ and were baptized? How are they doing? Like, like how is the church which was just a, a bunch of regular people that had committed to follow Jesus, that heard his preaching. That, that was the church at the time. Like, how were they doing? And so finally, when Timothy catches up with him, the very first thing Paul says to Timothy is, go back to Thessalonica. And he's like, wait a minute, I just got here. And he's like, yeah, but this is important. I can't not wait another day to get the news. I need you to go back. I need you to find out how are they doing how is the church doing? And so Timothy travels back to Thessalonica, 
connects with the church there, gets some updates, comes back, and he communicates to Paul what he found. Now, here's what's cool. In our Bibles, the, the two letters that are called 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are what Paul set down and wrote based on what Timothy came and told him. So Timothy came back with a report, and immediately Paul sat down to dictate letters back to the church in Thessalonica. It wrote one letter, 1 Thessalonians, and then probably almost immediately, scholars think. It could have been days, it could have been weeks. It was very, very soon after. He immediately wrote the second letter. And we learn in 1 Thessalonians in particular that what Paul heard was a lot of good news. He was super excited about what he heard about Christianity taking root. He, he was boasting about them. He was proud of them. He was so excited to hear that they were keeping the faith, that they were uh, growing in their uh, commitment to the Lord, and that, that they were uh, continuing in the faith in such a short amount of time. Like He was like, if, if the gospel could take root, if people could truly put their faith and trust in Jesus and begin to, to seek to follow him after such a short amount of time with him, then possibly even the gospel could reach such a great city as Rome. And Paul started to dream some pretty crazy dreams like take over the world dreams. But he also heard some stuff that was not so great as you could imagine. He heard some things that were a little bit discouraging, that not all of the people were doing it quite right. Some of them misunderstood some things. In fact, when Paul was there, he taught the gospel, and he taught about a second coming of Christ. And some people uh, misunderstood the idea that if Christ is coming again, he, he tried to teach to them this idea that like you need to live every day expectantly in line with parables that Jesus had taught, like live as if, the master could return at any day, right? Like, be ready. Get caught red-handed being a Christian. Well, what they heard was, God could come back any day. What's the point of working tomorrow? Right? Like, I'm, like this could happen any day. I don't know if you know what I do for a living, but I didn't like it yesterday, and I'd rather wait. And so a lot of people just stopped working, and started being a burden to their friends and family instead of a blessing. And then other people still started to be idle and busybodies and gossips and, and just causing problems. And so Paul had to address some things with these early believers in Thessalonica. He's like, of all the cities he's ever gone to, one of the places that he had so much hope and excitement for that Christianity would take root, that they would be a good example. And here he gets word that some are not being a great example. And not just anywhere, but in his... Like, like dream city, like if you're gonna not, if you're gonna mess up and not do it right, do it in some small little place where nobody really will know. Like everybody's gonna hear here. Like I want them to hear the right thing and see the right example. And so he wrote with some corrections, particularly about work and a person's work ethic. And so I want to read those to you because it goes in Second um, Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6. This is kind of what he wrote to them to give them some sort of course correction. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And we certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, 
but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even uh, while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. So Paul starts off just reminding him, hey, when Silas and I were there, which wasn't that long ago, I don't know if you remember this, but we didn't look for handouts. We didn't ask you to feed us. We worked and we did that on purpose because we wanted to give you an example. Because we wanted you to learn from us what it looked like to practically, tangibly be a Christ follower in the place that you live. It looks like this. You get up every day, you go to work, you provide for yourself, you're able to help and bless other people out of the abundance of your resource. Like, this is what it looked like, and this is how we modeled it to you. And here we get reports that some of you are just sitting around doing nothing. And on top of that, we get reports that some of you are just being idle busybodies. And so Paul just sort of lays it out there right up front. He's like, listen, when it comes to the people that are just being idle, busybodies, gossiping, poking their nose in other people's business like they got nothing better to do, let me tell you how you deal with them. Steer clear. Steer clear of them altogether. That's not the crowd you need to be with. He's like, I don't know if you guys remember, but when we were there, we did point out to you that if you don't work, you don't get to eat. So here we've got this idea where Paul is painting a picture here to new believers, people that were young in the faith. They're figuring out this how to follow Jesus stuff. And Paul's helping them understand that work is a big deal and it's important and not working is not a good idea for believers. And then we go back to our psalm and the psalmist is saying that it's useless to work hard early in the morning until late at night. Like it's, it's a waste of time to just work so hard and be so anxious chasing after food. And so it's like, how do we reconcile these two things where we get a picture of Paul saying that like working and working hard matters and the psalmist who says it's useless to work really hard. And it's important that we circle back to the beginning of the psalm and we get to that that part where, remember I said there's like these ultimatum type statements and there's this key word there that helps us unpack how those two things, although they seem different, they sync up and it's because the word is unless. So unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards the city, unless the Lord is at the heart of what you do, Being busy all day for the sake of being busy isn't what God's after. He's like, it's about learning how to work in a way that is synced up with who God is. In fact, that's the thing that probably is the benchmark thing that differentiates people who follow Christ from people who don't. And it seems sort of obvious, but it bears saying, probably the benchmark thing is that we actually believe in God. We believe that God is real. 
We believe that God is for us. We believe that God has a plan. We believe that God is at work in us and around us. We believe that God is at work doing specific things, that he is redeeming the world unto himself, that he is restoring relationship between people and him, between people and each other. We believe that he is at work to bring peace to your life personally and to the lives of you and your family and your friends. We believe that God is at work helping people know who he says they are. Actively communicating with people through his Holy Spirit and through his family to help people understand that they aren't who the world says they are. You're defined by who God says you are. Like God is at work doing these things. And as Christians... We believe these things. They start to shape and change the way we live our lives. So the way that we work starts to sync up, if you will, with how God is at work in the world. We start to have uh, really a mindset shift. So we go from... uh, before knowing Christ and believing in God days where it's a selfish mindset where we work to get what we can get. We work to feed ourselves. We work to get as much stuff as we can. We work to get as much money as we can. We work to get uh, a recognition, appreciation. We work to get picket, right? All the different reasons why people are driven to work. And, and when we start to put our faith in Christ and we believe in God and we start to learn who God is and we start to see what God is at work doing, we start to have a mindset shift where it's less about us getting what we want and it's more about us trying to sync up with what God is at work doing in the world. And now, over time, as you mature and grow in your faith as a disciple, it, it starts to become a lot about bringing peace where you go. It starts to be about being able to be generous. It starts to be able to be about, this is a place where it gives me an opportunity to have a relationship with people so that I can help them know who God says they are. And I wouldn't have been able to meet that person otherwise if I didn't work with them every day for the last two years. And work becomes about, how do I sync up with what God is at work doing in the world? And less about, what can I get? And that's where we start to see this hinge pin, unless, start to come together. It's not about working or not working. It's about working in a way that's synced up with what God is at work doing. Coincidentally, if you're um, curious about this idea and it's sort of scratching the surface for you on something and you're like, I, I like what he's saying, but I don't quite get it. I don't quite understand it totally. There's a really awesome Bible study that I've done tons and tons of times with a lot of people. It's fantastic. It really helps you understand and know, like, how do you figure out God's will? How do you figure out what God is at work doing? And how would you even know? And then when you do sort of like start learning, how do you join God in what he's doing? That sounds nice, but practically, what does it look like? There's an awesome study to help you learn a bunch about that. It's called Experiencing God. Uh, If you've never done the Experiencing God Bible study, I would highly, highly recommend it that every Christian does it like once a year. It is fantastic. Um, Let me give you a little insider tip. When you go on Amazon to buy it, or wherever, um, uh, there's going to be a book and a workbook. Do not buy the book. Not because the book is bad. You don't need the book. I'm saving you money. Buy the workbook and do every page. There you go. 
It will change your relationship with the Lord. If you've never done that, you need to do it. Get it. It's important. It's awesome. I love it. Sound good? Okay. The last thing I want to share with you is about um, the reward piece of thing. And so at the end of this deal, the psalmist talks about the fact that like, when we start to sync up with the way God is at work in the world, like when when we're fulfilling the unless, like we're we're synced up with the Lord, when we work God's way, what starts to happen is you start to be rewarded. And the psalmist says, are you guys ready for your reward? The psalmist says that the reward, when you're doing it right and you're working God's way and God is at work in what you're doing, the reward is you're going to have a whole bunch of kids. Normally people clap, like, do you guys not want a reward? No, I'm just kidding. So here's the thing. One of the things we need to understand is this was written in a different time and a different culture, and the culture that they lived in, having a lot of kids was tremendously important, highly valued. It was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of success. It was also uh, very important because when you live in an agricultural kind of hands-on-based community or, or culture, to have a lot of people that will do what dad says is great right? Like you have a lot of help and it makes work easier. Practically speaking, you have people to carry on your lineage and carry on the heritage of your name and your family and your lands and your trade. And so having a huge family was highly desirable. And the world that we live in right now is quite a bit different than the ancient world. And so the idea of having 15, 20 kids doesn't sound quite that awesome, Sounds a little bit scary. Like, do they make vans that big? Right? In fact, when I tell people, when people ask me, how many kids do you have? And I say five. I usually get a, oh, wow. Like, who does that anymore? Right? And so... It's not a super common thing anymore, but what, what is common and, and what transfers throughout time is the principle of the reward is that, is that when we're doing things God's way and when we're working God's way and we're joining with God and what he is at work in the world doing, and we're not lazy, idle, sitting around on our hands when we're, we're, we're putting ourselves out there and we're working in sync with the way the Lord wants us to work, the reward is family. And there's not anybody in here that, that doesn't have a desire to have a loving family, to have a spouse that is sold out and loves you with all their heart, to have kids that you can love and pour into and, and that love and pour into you back and bless you, to have an extended family that you can love. Like the idea of having a family that you are deeply committed to and is deeply committed in return to you is a pretty desirable thing for just about everybody on the planet, no matter where you're from. In fact, at the very end of most people's lives, the things that they remember most are the people that they've really loved, their family. They remember the sacrifices that they made for them and that were made in return. They remember the stories and the memories. That's the reward, is a family. And so, and I just want to say too that 
I think God does something super awesome and supernatural in rewarding us with family is that not everybody comes across family the, the traditional uh, biological way, so to speak. And so you, you may be absolutely blessed with family as kids and cousins and grandparents and all that stuff. And some people aren't in that way. But when you commit to follow Christ, you join a big family. And you guys hear me talk about it. I talk a lot about it with our Blessing Beds team and on Jesus Time and different people that I'm communicating with is I talk about this idea that we've got Jesus family. Because when you commit to the family of God, you're adopted, it says, like sons and daughters, heirs with Christ, and you become a part of this Jesus family. And, and I think everybody uh, probably can relate to the idea that at times in your life, particularly people that have been in church a long time, you have gained relationships that are like your hearts knitted together. You may not be biologically from the same family tree, They're not your cousin. They weren't your daughter. They're not your mom. They're not your dad or your uncle. But somehow you got knitted together like absolute family. You guys, that's God's reward. When we sync up with the Lord and we're we're working in sync with what God is at work in the world doing, the, the reward is family. And I think that comes in some some amazing ways. So I want to finish up with a couple of questions just to look at with you guys to be thinking about for your uh, home group time and your small group time. If you're new with us at Real Life um, or watching online uh, from home uh, or for where, from wherever you're watching from, uh, one of our dreams as a church is that everybody is connected in a small group. So that outside of uh, our Sunday connections and gatherings and ministries that we serve in, community stuff that we do, that, that you're connected in a small group. And that small group really is an opportunity for you to actually start to build Jesus' family. Because you spend time together, you study God's word together, you stir each other on together, you pray together, you eat together, you laugh together. Like You can't do that with two or three hundred people, but you can do that with ten people. And so these are things to help you in those groups that you're in. So here's a couple questions. I just want to run through them with you. Um, First one is uh, share about a time when you were working hard and getting nowhere. I don't know if anybody's ever done that. I think I'm an expert at it. Um, Next one is, uh, does it feel like the way you are working now is resulting in times of rest? You know, the psalmist says that God gives rest to those he loves. And, and if you can just stop and assess for a minute, like, are you working and always exhausted? And I'm not talking about some health thing, like leave that stuff out of the equation. Like, are you just feeling wrung out and wore out all the time? That is a little bit like the dash light going off, like your check engine light. That's a little litmus test, a little reminder, like, hey, something's not right here. When we're doing things God's way, there's rest. There's family. So those are some things to chew on. The next one is, um, how can you see God at work in providing you with family? That may be kids. That may be 
a cousin that you reconnected with that's like a real family and it's like, man, this is, we, we're just stitched together like crazy and we're family and we're tight. It may be siblings, it may be parents, and it may be Jesus' family. It may be people that you've met through church and through community that you feel like you have gained a sister or a brother that you would have never had otherwise. So that's great stuff to talk about with your group. And the last one is, uh, what's an area that you can adjust to become more in line with the kingdom mindset? And to just be transparent and be real. Like, I hope you guys are seeing that as a part of our church, something that we value is people just being real, being transparent, talking about your real stuff. When you get together in your small groups and your home groups, it's a safe place to like lay it out there. I try to do my best and along with all the rest of us that speak and teach to, to just model from our position of just being vulnerable and being real so that we help you understand that when you get together, it's okay. You can say, hey, I was really struggling. This is somewhere where I was off or this is something that I had a hard time with. So those are things to help you in your groups. Um, We're going to finish with communion together. If you are new with us at Real Life, we take communion every week as a family. And we do that so that we don't get far from remembering what Christ did for us on the cross. We want to remember what was accomplished for us, that we have freedom from sin and a way to be in a right relationship with God so that we can live a life that's synced up with him, that that we can have a, a kingdom mindset. And that's an option because Christ made a way for us to have forgiveness of our sins, to be made right with God. And he also did this amazing thing where he lived a life that he actually taught and walked out what it looks like to be a human that's synced up with the Father. And so we get to look to him as our example. And those are things that we're grateful for and we remember when we take these elements every Sunday. And so I just want to pause for a second and just give you a chance to just reflect and uh, talk to God about your gratefulness and um, thankfulness for what Christ did for you. Go ahead. Every week, we remember what was accomplished for us by the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. He said, this is his body given for us, so let's remember the body of Christ as we take the bread. After supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents a new covenant. This is a a promise that our sins can be forgiven because of the shed blood of Christ. Let's take the cup. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your son. Thank you for his example. Lord, we thank you for Paul and his teaching and the words that we have recorded to learn from still today. Help us to just keep growing individually to become more and more like your son and help us as a church, Lord, to just become more and more like the kind of Jesus family that uh, you want us to be. Help us keep reaching out, inviting people in, getting out of our comfort zone, looking for strays drawing people into a a safe place and a safe family where they can get to know who you are. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.